Hello and welcome to the D1 Softball Podcast. I'm your host, Tara Henry. As always, we are excited to bring you the best of the best in college softball. After the show, head on over to d1softball.com for all the latest stories, coaching scoop, international softball news, fall schedules, and more. If you subscribe today, you can use Podcast 20. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T 20 for 20% off an annual subscription. We are excited for today's new episode that features associate head coach Kirk Walker from UCLA. started i'm joined by my co-host Rhiannon podkey re how are you doing doing good doing good i'm trying to bat down the hatches here for the big chill that's going to come through soon i need to weatherize my house so uh that's exciting getting excited for christmas national signing day for football is was we're taping this taking place so there's a lot of stuff going on for the holidays right now how are you doing i'm good yeah we are heading into that holiday season i can't believe it's getting a lot closer to actual softball season. I can't believe we're, we're almost to Christmas and uh, New Year's Eve will be right around the corner. And then it's like a month before we kind of start ball. So excited that we keep rolling these fall reports out on the website and keeping you all up to date and ready for 2023. With that, let's go into the fall reports of the week. We had Brady Vernon uh, with a the report on Texas A&M, the Aggies, Trisha Ford in her first season at Texas A&M moving over from Arizona state. Uh, she they've got some new faces there, but it's going to be interesting to see how they stack up in the sec and what she's got moving forward. There re thoughts on the Aggies. Yeah. Just a lot of newness, you know, and in all, I think this fall was just a lot of feeling out period whether just, you know, the players that were there and her kind of becoming coming in um, as we talked about when we had her on the podcast too. And then, you know, some of the transfers they have coming in and just kind of, you know, after such a, you know, mainstay like Joe Evans there for so long, the change there, um, a lot of stuff going on at Texas, Texas A&M all together as an athletic department. So um, I think she, I mean, she seems like she's really geeked about it, excited. I'm interested to see, cause I think she's been kind of, you know, she's done so well in the PAC 12 and kind of, you know, in some sense, this flies under the radar there just because people don't see them as much. Um, so I want to really see how her offense and her philosophies work in the SEC and just love her attitude and stuff. So I'm excited to see how that works. And, and I think they've got some they've got a good base to build on a foundation and um, they'll gradually she's a great recruiter. So I'm sure this will just be the start of what is a promising uh, you know, tenure there for her, hopefully down uh, with that Davis Diamond gem that she's got to work with in facilities. Yeah, an incredible recruiting facility. And I like what you said there, a good base. Let's not forget that Julia Cottrell comes over from Oklahoma State, uh, will now be at Texas A&M, which I think she provides some stability there behind the plate for the Aggies. Head on over to the site, Brady Vernon, with the rest of the report, d1softball.com. That's the Texas A&M Aggies. Then we head on over to the ACC re with a report on Georgia Tech, Eileen Morales and they, gosh, they were such a fun team to watch last season. And I swear, I mean, it's in your report, but uh, top 10 plays almost every week on defense. Love it. Love a team that, that can play some defense, but re what do you got on the yellow jackets? Yeah, they, they returned 16 from last season and they had a pretty good season. I mean, they, there was a few dips, but like they started to come on, they hit some, they, you know, they had a pretty good 
like rise up there for a while. And then when you have your senior pitchers back that were so successful last year, like Blake Nelliman and Chandler Dennis, that's a great, great way to start. Like that makes you, as a coach, it's kind of heartening to know you have two of those people in the circle every game, as well as senior catcher Emma Koff, who's one of the best players in the nation. And honestly, one of the most well-rounded kids in the nation. This girl, like, I don't know if she sleeps. Like she's like <laughs> winning citizenship awards. She's like solving, you know, I just, it's amazing. She's all the ACC leadership committees. And then, as you said, with the web gems, we've got the their junior shortstop, uh, Jin Celio. Sorry, is uh, she's back to anchor the infield. The, she, they just call her the walking web gem over there in Atlanta. Um, so it's really, I'm, you know, there's a lot of upside, and the ACC keeps getting deeper and deeper each year. So, uh, but they'll be right in the thick of it. I when I started to go over this roster again, it's like, wow, there's a lot of people back that were really, really key cogs. And obviously, they got to replace Trisha Awald, who's the, their first baseman, who was a huge offensive piece. But uh, sounds like they brought in some great players. And again, just the maturation process of last year's players, I think it's going to be tremendous. So excited to see what they do. Um, she's, you know, they're, uh, they've got a very well-rounded team. I'm very intrigued by that. But again, as we said, the ACC just with Duke and Clemson on the rise and, you know, obviously Florida State is the mainstay. Um, it's always a, it's, it's a much more challenging league than it was even three years ago. So head on over to the site, the rest of the report. Uh, Ree's got you covered, Georgia Tech. Then we head on over to Florida State. You just mentioned Florida State. Lonnie Alameda did get upset in the regionals, which I think we all had Florida State playing in the Women's College World Finals, uh, Women's College World Series Finals uh, just a season ago. But Mississippi State came into Tallahassee and upset the Knolls at home. It's really surprising uh, to see, but again, let main say as, as uh, prevalent as Lonnie Alameda and that entire staff, we'll see how they respond heading into the season. I would think there's a little bit of a chip on the shoulder there for, for the Knowles. Re, what are your thoughts on uh, Florida state? Yeah, definitely. I think there is, I mean, there's a standard that they all expect. And I think Graham, as you, if you read it, it talks a lot about that culture they've established. Uh, it's, it's a great kind of lesson into that culture a little bit as well as just the fact that it's not just culture. They do have talent, like Kat Sandercox back, Michaela Edenfield, who started out with a bang last year, kind of, you know, tailed off a little bit, which as is also discussed as a catcher that can kind of sometimes happen, especially first year when you're playing that many games, taxing on your body, it's hard to do both things, but um, she's back and she's just got tremendous potential and upside. Uh, the only really, you know, Sydney Sherrill, who's a huge, huge piece to replace at third, but again, they've done it in the past. We've seen them kind of who's going to possibly take over that. And then it happens. Um, so they've brought, they bring a lot of pieces back and I'm a, they got some transfers that, that are coming in and some really good red shirts that are going to be now able to play. So I think it's going to be more the same at FSU. And as you said, you know, the stability of coaching with Lonnie, just signing that contract after last year, extending her. So uh, don't expect much. I think that was a little bit of a blip and, you know, saying that you, you know, not make it to women's college world series is a blip just shows you kind of like where that program has ascended to. Um, but they've got, they've got all the pieces in place to make another run this coming up season. Yeah. So, and uh, there's going to be some newcomers on that pitching staff and we all know how uh, well uh, Lonnie Alameda does in, in leading that staff. They've got the uh, Boston university uh, Patriot league pitcher of the year, Ali Dubois, Dubois. Uh, heading over there and Allison royalty out of Arizona state, which got to see her throw significantly here in the pack. So again, Florida state uh, head on over to the site. Graham Hayes with the extensive 
report. Very thorough. It's very thorough. It's very, like if you're, I mean, I was, I was engrossed. There's a lot of stuff covered there. So head on. I mean, take some time. You're going to need some time. It's great. So take some time and read it all. Grab a, make a cup of coffee, maybe a whole French press <laughs> and make sure you got a few cups of coffee. Head on over and, and check out the Florida State Seminoles report. Uh, well, that's it for our fall reports. Re, um, anything other you got in terms of news for the week in the softball world? Nothing really newsy. I mean, we've seen a few like here and there, just like more, more uh, schedules being released, you know, some that are solidifying things. I think we saw, you know, even some pro news. I think Chelsea Alexander with the OKC Spark signing was the Oklahoma State um, standout. But we, you know, we got to know her pretty well and her brother pretty well. Remember her brother who was the, you know, showed the cows. There's a story yes. on our side of that. We love him. He's awesome, Caden. We love him. Shout out to that family. Um, so that was, a, you know, just kind of some newsy stuff in the pro realms. But uh, mainly just a lot of, a lot of uh, schedule releases going on and some of these that had, you know, just needed a few more games to solidify here and there. Um, but nothing super, super newsy, you know, um, we did, you know, and NFCA, everything goes to holidays kind of quiet right now, which is probably better. If there's no news right now, that's probably a good thing. If you're a team don't want to be in the news right now. Uh, yeah, it's get, it's starting to get a little bit more quiet, but, uh, that's, that's it for the news of the week. Now we're going to head into our guest of the week. None other than associate head coach Kirk Walker with the UCLA Bruins. Always love chatting with him. And I almost got him to break some news. I, I'm not quite sure. It, he, we didn't we didn't get it, but sounds like there's some some pretty cool things in the works uh, over here for the Mary Nutter. And we'll stay tuned for that. Don't don't quite have it yet, but uh, stay tuned for that. Here's Kirk Walker uh, with UCLA on the D1 Sumble podcast. Tara Henry here, back with the D1 Softball Podcast. Really excited to be joined uh, by our guest of the week, associate head coach of the UCLA Bruins, Kirk Walker. Kirk, thank you so much for joining us today on the D1 Softball Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So for those of you that don't know, Kirk has been around the softball world. We were just talking about it for uh, almost over four decades. Been a part of a UCLA Two, two separate stints. So we'll go through this uh, 10 years with Sharon and Sue. So Sharon Backus and Sue Inquist, then head on up, up to Oregon State, actually won the first Pac-10 championship with the Beavers, uh, not in softball only, just in women's sports in general, uh, and then came back to UCLA. So Kirk, I want to go into that. You know, you've been around the softball world forever. How did that start for you? When did you get that softball bug and, and how was that? How did you get into it? Well, it really was about my younger sister. She was really, um, she was a great athlete and she was passionate about softball and playing softball. And I was always around, always around the games, always around the teams, um, <clears throat> helping whoever. And uh, when she was 13, she was recruited to play for a travel ball team and uh, which was, would be late these days, but that was uh, when they started then. And um, started hanging around with the team, being around it, throwing batting practice. Um, by two years later, when I was 17, uh, we went off to a national championship and won our first national title. And I was an assistant coach. And um, before I went into UCLA, I was the head coach for the, the junior team. And I was uh, an assistant with the 1800 team. And uh, so I was doing all of that. I um, was very passionate about it, coaching all summer, traveling around all summer. Um, as you would obviously travel ball. So definitely had a great passion for it. Passion for it. 
And it really came about from the coaching side. I didn't start playing until much later. Now you mentioned national championships. You're talking about club ball, but I want to mention the national championships that you've been a part of uh, at UCLA. So seven national championships and 16 women's college world series appearances. That's a lot of experience at, at the height of our game of those seven. What do you, which team do you think was the toughest to kind of get that national championship? Which of those years, uh, cause there are a few 84, 85, 88, 89, 90, 92. Um, and then 2019 as well. What was the, the toughest one, do you think, to, to yeah, get? You know, I mean, every one of them's journey is very unique and different. And, and I can say that it's it's never easy to win, right? You have to have a lot of things go right. But I will say the, the most unlikely um, of the seven was 1985. And while we were defending national champions, we still had Debbie Doom and Tracy Compton uh, on the mound, which you would think automatically to win. But we really struggled. Um, we really struggled to find our chemistry and, and our ability to perform. And we, we uh, ended up going into the College World Series, not firing on all cylinders. We squeaked in um, off of a squeeze bond in the regional. And um, we actually won one of our games at the College World Series against Lisa Ishikawa at Northwestern. She threw a no-hitter for, uh, I think, eight or nine innings. And we only scored because of the tiebreaker uh, on a squeeze bond. Um, so... You know, it was it was not uh, destined to, to happen easily that year, but um, we ended up beating Nebraska in the finals in extra innings. Um, Lori Sipple was on the mound and threw an off-speed pitch with bases loaded to our catcher, who probably um, probably the only pitch she could have hit. Um, and uh, we got a base hit to right field and won the ball game. So that championship was by far um, uh, the most unlikely, I would say, uh, based on where we were at. But um, all of them have had their own challenges, to be honest with you, along the way. And we joked a little about this beforehand, but you were kind of like the the glue or like the, the ketchup of the mustard in the, in the hamburger between Sue and Sharon Backus uh, and then Kelly I and Lisa. What has that process been like for you um, being around uh, kind of those, all of those coaches and all the great uh, women that have played at UCLA? Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously I was so fortunate to be involved with the program uh, starting in fall of 83. So uh, they won the championship in 82. 83 was the year where they all got food poisoning. Um, yes. And that was the second NCAA title. And then I came in at such an early age uh, and an early time in our sport, right, um, out of Title IX. So the NCAA had just uh, come to existence for women. And um, I didn't know any different, right? So I was a part of it. I was, here I was. Uh, working with Sharon and Sue and running around doing anything and everything that they wanted. You know, I was dragging the field. I was lining the field. I was um, throwing batting practice. I was hitting the outfield, I, literally whatever they needed. And I just loved being around it. And after those first two years, um, you know, Sharon kept upping the ante for me and put me onto full scholarship and then said, Hey, we want you to kind of actually be, you know, more uh, associated with the program than just as a manager. So by my junior year, I was completely in an undergrad role and had full reign over the pitchers and, and the hitters and was training all of them and uh, still while going to school. So I was so fortunate. Um, but to be around two of the, uh, the greatest coaches, um, I think, that have ever coached in women's sports, Sharon Backus and Sue Inquist, very different. Um, Sue was obviously a young coach at the time, but, um, you know, all of the, uh, the makeup 
of Sue Inquist was still there. And uh, it was just manifested um, maybe a little bit differently, um, not as, not as, uh, not as uh, polished, um, but it was there. And uh, so I was so fortunate. Um, so many mentors back then, obviously Sharon Drysdale and um, just so many other greats, Carol Spanks and um, across the country that just I was able to be around and just soak so much great um, coaching knowledge in. So that was really what I grew up. I didn't know anything different. And then um, when I left and started my own program, and that's when my eyes really were opened up to realize that, you know, uh, things are things are not always um, as easy as, as you think they're going to be. And things don't always necessarily uh, fall into place. And it requires a lot of tactician, right, as a coach. And uh, so that was that was pretty great for me. The fortunate thing for me coming back to UCLA was that I coached Kelly and Lisa um, when they were student athletes, right? So Kelly came in first and was there, and I coached the pitchers at the time. Kelly was a catcher, and then the second year, uh, Kelly's sophomore year, Lisa came in. And that year, we had Lisa Fernandez, uh, Heather Compton, um, and Dee Dee Wyman all come in as freshmen, on top of us having uh, Lisa Longacre, the Honda Award winner, and Tiffany Boyd. Um, who ended up transferring the next year to uh, Cal State Fullerton, who won the championship game that year before. So it was uh, five of the top pitchers in the country were all in under my tutelage and I had my hands full. Um, so, so oftentimes what happened, um, Lisa and Kelly and I would work out after practice because practice was full of everyone else. And, and Lisa, you know, didn't want to take away from her hitting time and her defense time. So we spent Many, many um, of our workouts were done uh, post-practice or right after practice. And um, it was a great time. We became very close. Um, and uh, I was still a student uh, or just graduated, actually. Um, so I was very similar in age. So we were, we were very close, very connected. But when they would go off to be student athletes and maybe go to a party or go to something, I would be like, okay, see you later. And I'd go the other way. Um, so... We were very connected, and so it, when it was an opportunity to come back um, and coach, um, I guess funny story is that Kelly was supposed to go with me to Oregon State and be my assistant. So um, when I got the job, she was the first person to ask. She was going to come with me, and literally two days later, Sharon said, hey, I want you to take Kirk's job and stay here. Obviously, she chose, um, chose the latter, which has been fortuitous and uh, a great opportunity for her. So... Um, I actually took, um, at that point, I took a puppy. Gina Vecchioni came to be my first assistant, who obviously came back and coached at UCLA um, as well. So it was great, obviously, to be around that time. And then uh, the opportunity to come back when uh, Kelly as the head coach and, and Lisa as an assistant, um, the opportunity to come back and kind of get the program um, back into a winning way was um, a, a no-brainer, right? It was, it was a perfect fit, a perfect opportunity. We had spent so much time together. Um, we could finish each other's sentences and our thoughts. And um, it was really a great opportunity to come back. And you mentioned coaching and continuing like education. I think, Kirk, one of the great things about you is you've been around the game for, like we said, decades and decades, but you're still learning. You're still coaching. You're still teaching. And I just saw... A, a, you know, a post on, on base you, we have Rachel Garcia in there and you're doing a, a, a pitching clinic. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that, 
that part of the game and how we've moved to a very data rich, you know, uh, sport and, and what you've been working on when you seen you seen, like you said, you, you named so many different arms, incredible, uh, pitchers at UCLA. I mean, that's a true pitch by committee. I guess you could say you got five aces. Uh, and that was what 20, 30 years ago. So we, we have been doing we it. For a while. Throwing, we weren't playing 56 games back then either. So it was, it was a challenge. <laughs> but can you yeah. talk about how that's impacted the game? Cause you've been around, um, to see that shift. Yeah. You know, it's been, uh, the education in our game has really evolved. And I think uh, not only on the hitting side, I think we've seen so much gains on the, the hitting technology, but certainly on the pitching side as well. And I think while the pitching might have been a little bit more behind the hitting when it came to the technology that was put in and, and I guess the, the research that was put into the science of, of hitting. Um, but so pitching was lagging behind a little bit, but it's been really incredible. You know, obviously had the great opportunity, Mike Kendry and Sue Inquist pulled me in with Right View Pro at the time with Don Slott to really kind of um, really sit down and say, okay, what do all the greats do? I had had the fortune of coaching for 20 years and so many of the Olympians and just great athletes, top athletes. And they really wanted to know what do all the greats do and, and, and then prove it with video. And uh, video was not easy to come by, right? We don't have great footage of Tracy Compton and Debbie Doom. Uh, my dad had taken home movies from the UCLA games. And so a lot of that footage was what we used and from bad angles and blurry. And, but, you know, really through that process um, started to learn a lot about what the greats all did, not what the pitching coaches taught them or, or said for them to do, but what they actually did that were the same. Um, and so that was a really big opportunity. And then um, within the last now four years uh, with On Base U, I think the next layer has been tying in the data and the information with kinematic sequence and with, um, you know, digital analysis um, and biomechanics that um, really has kind of taken our game to another level. And this on base U course that we just are kind of, um, that you were just talking about that we just um, really are launching right now is um, we open up the conversation saying we have so much information and there's so much more that we're learning. we almost have more questions than we have answers. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was an amazing, this last weekend, amazing session with some great coaches there, uh, some division one programs, obviously, and um, just the conversations and what we are seeing and what we're learning about what great pitchers really should be executing um, and what are the limiting factors for pitchers really excelling has been fascinating. Um, and can you kind of explain what you're seeing the key markers? Like, what do all the greats do? What are or maybe two or three things that you see most of the greats doing and it yeah. doesn't have to be a huge exp explanation but what are you what are uh, your trends i think the, the thing that we're definitely seeing is that you know successful pitchers are um in their kinematic sequence they are their hips are going first and we always used to think that the pitch really was dictated by once the front foot landed right once the front foot landed it kind of it kind of aligned everything and everything prior to that was just preparation but what we're seeing is there's definitely an effect um, on the trunk and torso and lower body preparation to throw the pitch prior to that foot touch. Um, and then, you know, we're seeing if, if um, a couple, there's, what I will say is there are a lot of characteristics that are limiting with some pitchers, and that's going to have to do with posture positions and I would say arm positions. And um, so I think what we're really seeing is that when athletes have some of those limitations, um, it doesn't mean they're not going to be good, but they're probably going to be a lot less efficient and work a lot harder than somebody else. So it's, it's, um, it's a two day course, so it's hard for me to come into just a few things, but um, yeah. 
again, it, sports is a simple thing, right? It's pick it up and throw it. It's uh, look at it, hit it. Um, but I think when we start to understand how the body works and how uh, athletes process visually information, gather information, and then translate it efficiently and effectively and repeatedly, uh, that's ultimately what we want to have in sports. No, it's just just hearing that and knowing that that's available for um, you know coaches across the country. I think it's a really uh, incredible resource. So people should check it out on Base U. And, and also on coaching, I know you were at the NFCA. I saw you a little bit in San Antonio after one of the meetings. What's happening with um, any updates? I know we talked a little bit about potentially fall recruiting calendar, any updates that you've got from the D1 caucus that you can share with um, our, uh, our our listeners? Yeah, I mean, there's really nothing uh, in particular other than I think we, uh, I think we always feel like we're trying to um, make sure that our sport is moving ahead as best possible for the student athletes, for the recruits, the travel ball coaches, for, you know, division one coaches. You know, we're in a unique situation in our sport that really Division one coaches um, really are at the top of the food chain, right? We don't have a, a real professional level where we have a vast number of coaches coaching at the professional level. Um, so a lot of our, I guess, our dedication and commitment to the overall sport is really coming out of that D1 coaches group. Um, that being said, the D1 coaches group has their specific, um, you know, job to, to execute. So I think um, the one thing that I, I think I would love for most people to know is that um, a majority of those coaches in that room uh, that are talking about ball recruiting or talking about anything that has to do with travel ball or any other part of the sport really do care about the sport, right? They've grown up in the sport. They've been in the sport. They've been in the shoes of the student athletes, um, maybe in a different era and a different time. They've been a player at the collegiate level. They've been assistant coaches and now head coaches. So there's a, a great affinity and love and passion for the sport beyond just being division one coaches. And I think um, a lot of our conversations are centered around, you know, are we, are we doing the best we can for our student athletes? Are we creating a, a, a culture and a climate that is giving them opportunity to succeed and thrive? Or are we making it difficult for them with injuries and overuse and distractions? And are we being efficient with how we are um, working together. And I think that's always been a challenge in softball is that we have a lot of factions that have agendas, um, not bad people. I think a lot of people that have agendas um, that they're trying to accomplish. And at the end of the day, um, it comes down to the student athlete and the sport. And our sport is nothing if our student athletes aren't thriving. And if we don't take care of our sport um, intelligently, effectively, and intently, um, then we are going to start moving backwards at some point because our athletes are going to start being able to really compete and thrive and um, they're going to lose interest and lose the, they're going to find something else uh, that's going to be better for them. And we just can't see that. Um, we shouldn't ever let that happen. And just building on that, Kirk, you founded the uh, Equality Coaching Alliance and the LGBTQ uh, Sports Commission. So we're talking about uh, athlete welfare, health and well-being. Can you expand a little bit on that and what that means to you and having an inclusive um, space for um, both men and women to feel accepted uh, in the sport of softball? 
Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, you know, it, it really is um, came about kind of not as a purpose and a goal for me. Um, obviously, I had obviously been gay my whole life. Um, and I was, um, I guess I would say closeted or not really out or open about it uh, for most of my coaching career at the time. And it was 2005. And um, I was going through the adoption process to adopt my daughter and with my partner, and I just um, started to share it. So it really kind of, it changed the dialogue. At the time, the media said, well, you're the first publicly out Division One coach. And I said, oh, no, I'm not. I've been coaching Division One softball for a long time and coaching softball. I know. And round athletics, I know plenty of, of women that are, you know, gay or lesbian. Um, and they put the microphone on my phone and said, oh, who? And I would, all of a sudden I realized, I'm like, there's a there's a difference between being out I guess personally and being out professionally or being out publicly and so it really it started to kind of resonate with me that realizing that you know what a disservice we are doing to our student athletes um, so women are growing up playing our sport with coaches around them that are great influences great role models and none of them were publicly out professionally so here there's athletes are who, again, many are, um, you know, will be the same percentage will be LGBT as any other part of life. Um, those athletes that might be gay realize, oh, if I coach, I can't be professionally out. There's a risk that I might not be able to be in that profession. And to me, it, it um, certainly became a negative. The more that the younger generation was becoming more open and comfortable in who they were, the less having less role models uh, for them to be publicly and authentically themselves was really sending a horrible message. And we were losing a lot of women to coaching um, in my belief. I think there was a lot of women that were moving away from coaching because they felt like they couldn't be authentic um, and they weren't going back into the closet. So to me, I think it, it started to realize that as an invisible minority, the LGBT coaches um, were trying to do the best they could for their athletes and for themselves. And it really created two separate worlds. Um, and what I think we see today rampantly and, and wide across our sport at the collegiate level and travel ball level is that um, inclusive environments um, only create greater authenticity, which in turn creates greater commitment and focus to being an athlete and less energy spent trying to hide, trying to distract, trying to avoid being discovered um, or just lying right? You know, out and out lying about who you are. And I don't think any, we would ever want any of our student athletes to have the lack of integrity to lie, but yet we showed them that you had to lie or at least be silent to exist in our sport. So to me, I think the conversation has always been back to our student athletes and our student athletes deserve the opportunity to thrive, be authentic, um, and be included regardless of um, race, religion, sexual orientation, or any other uh, identity diversity that they may bring to the table. Um, the key thing, though, is diversity exists. Um, so to ever squelch or hide diversity that exists is going to have a negative ramification in some way, shape, or form. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that time and time again, we see when an athlete comes out or when a coach comes out that, that we have um, those teams tend to have one of their best seasons or thrive or be highly successful because again um, someone in their in their family their team 
has, has really shared something deeply personal, showed an authenticity, and that really bonds a group together and makes everyone feel more safe and more accepted, even if they're not LGBTQ+. Uh, they tend to feel more safe because if they can be accepted, then all the diverse things that I bring to the table um, can probably be accepted as well. And so to me, that's, that's when we are truly developing powerful, effective leaders in, and athletes. Um, and in our case, obviously female athletes, which I think is really important. You know, Kirk, the seven national championships are incredible, but I think um, what you've done to promote inclusion and diversity in the sport of softball is a legacy. I think that former alumni, um, Bruins, softball players across the, the country are very proud and, and can't think of a better person um, to kind of spearhead that. So thank you so much for what you do. Uh, I know there's all of us um, can't thank you enough for for just making this a safe environment for everybody. Um, and you're part of that. Um, we'll end with, yeah, we'll end with this. Heading into to next season, you know, you've had the whole fall with the Bruins um, and you're heading into 2023. Give us a little snippet of what's going on uh, in Westwood uh, up at Easton Stadium. What are you seeing out of that squad? Um, it's, I, I will tell you, it's a special group. Uh, it's the largest group we've ever had, 27. Um, not going to lie, it's a lot. It's a lot of people. Um, so there's always a lot of concern about the culture, climate, and, you know, is everyone on the same page? Is everyone bought in? And, you know, we do spend a lot of time on those issues always. Um, so nothing's really changed there, but it's a special group. I'm going to tell you, um, there's all the way down to, you know, the, the players that are being role players that may not see a lot of starting time. Um, really some special, special individuals. And I'm super excited. Uh, I hate to do any kind of the prediction stuff and I think we're very talented and we're very special. So those are two things that you want um, to have in place. And then you've got to go out and have a lot of great things fall into place. But uh, I'm not going to do the Dave Roberts, um, we're winning the national or the <laughs> series thing. I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to say uh, there's no reason to believe that we won't be in a position to, uh, to be hunting for it um, if all goes well. And well, if you're not going to give us any predictions, tell us a little bit about the Mary Nutter Classic. Are there any yeah. updates heading into the Mary Nutter Classic? Because, I mean, please believe, Kirk, you know, I was there and there was just, it was hard to get a seat. And I know there's reserved seating now. Is there anything else that you can update us on? Well, um, that's the one thing I can update you on is that uh, we've got a great schedule. Obviously, UCLA Oklahoma matchup is, is, is a highlight of it uh, coming on Sunday morning, 9.30 a.m. Um, but there's some other great matchups throughout the entire weekend, right? UCLA and Oklahoma are both playing. We've got a lot of top 20 teams and teams that were in the postseason all playing in the weekend. So a lot of great matchups. The reserve seating is fantastic. So the seating right behind um, the backstop on the main three fields are reserve seating. So those can be reserved ahead of time. Um, if there is any seating available, those also can be purchased day of um, right there at the seat for scan and, and be able to purchase those. So that's one way to be able to kind of secure a seat. But, uh, you know, um, it's a good problem to have when you have so many people that you can't find a seat. But yet, <laughs> it's, a, it's a challenge as a, an event organizer uh, to always make sure we're keeping our fans happy. So there's some other really exciting things happening. Um, nothing that I can announce yet, but hopefully in the next maybe few weeks, um, a, a very historic thing I think is going to be happening. Um, and I look forward to sharing that with you. Um, when I can. Perfect. 
Uh, all right. Well, thank you everybody for joining us this week on the D1 Supple Podcast. Tara Henry for Kirk Walker. Kirk, thank you so much. Uh, best of luck this season. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Kirk Walker, UCLA softball. Really, I mean, been there for almost four decades, over four decades, and has kind of been the the constant between Sharon Backus, Sue Inquist, uh, Kelly Inouye Perez, Lisa Fernandez. He's kind of seen it all. So just kind of getting his perspective on the program in the last, you know, 40 years was really cool and just uh Really commend him for his work, not only in the sport of softball, but for the LGBTQ uh, community as well. Yeah, really just uh, always enjoy whenever I've interacted with Kirk and just kind of, you know, he's always willing to talk, which isn't always the case with some people to put himself out there. Some people, you know, don't take that, don't have the courage to put themselves out there with with all of it. And just he's a great coach on top of it all. And, uh, and, you know, just does a lot, a lot of stuff that doesn't get as much attention that you realize wow he's behind that too and you kind of realize it and you're like man this guy does a lot of stuff for softball um, and as you said greater good too so yeah it was a great interview and um really really loved the historical part i think he's like you said kind of he knows that guy has forgotten more than most of us even know about it and uh it's it's always fascinating to hear him talk and when i get to my chances to talk to him too well that's it for the d1 softball podcast this week Happy holidays from the D1 softball staff, from from myself, uh, from Rian and Podkey, my co-hosts, Brady Vernon, Graham Hayes. Uh, we're wishing you all a safe, happy, and healthy holiday. Re, final thoughts? Yes, happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, Kwanzaa, whatever you celebrate, enjoy it. Don't, uh, you know, don't take the time with family for granted. If you have family, if you don't, um, you know, we're sending you positive and love. There's, there's people, you know call us if you need to talk to someone if you want come over to my house for the holidays if you want um it's just I think we've learned especially these last few weeks and months just like how valuable just being able to you know be here and celebrate and be around people is um and you've always got the softball community too so um just just really hoping that people can you know realize that and get some you know it's always cool to get cool gifts but I think that's the biggest gift is just to be able to have the you know relationships with other people and be, be grateful for what you have because there's so many people that don't have that and don't have uh, hardly anything so um you know don't want to get super sentimental here for the holidays but it's pretty cool and it's going to be freezing for most of the country so don't like do anything stupid and get caught in like a winter storm freeze so be be safe and uh watch as much sports as you can indoors if you need to and then just spend time with family but Really, really cool. I can't wait till Santa gets here. I'm very excited for the, you know, the socks that I might get, you know, or something of that nature. Once you turn like 30, it turns into socks and practical gifts. So kind of the, uh, I love seeing kids get gifts still because it brings back that wonderment. So that's always a fun part. If you have kids around, it kind of makes it really super special. Well, echoing on what Rhiannon said, thank you all for, for being with us uh, each week here on the D1 Softball Podcast. We're thankful for you. Without you, we wouldn't be able to do what we love and that's cover uh, the sport of softball and we're thankful for you. Anyone listening, if any of their kids or anyone gets a cool softball gift, tweet us a photo of it on the D one or to Tara and I, and we'll tweet it out. Like there's any gifts of softball being bestowed upon anyone. Let us know. We'll share it with the world because the gift of softball is the greatest gift of all. 
Yeah, cue some holiday music. I gotta get that in here. So and you can subscribe to D1 if someone <laughs> gives the gift, gift of D1 softball subscription. It's a great gift, and you can do it last minute. Yes, give the gift of D1 softball. I don't know the site d1softball.com. We also have gift cards available, so you you're able to actually pick, purchase a gift card and can use that as a stocking stuffer, a, a great stocking stuffer for all of you and all of you and your last minute gifts. Uh, that's it. For the week on the D1 Softball Podcast, Tara Henry for Rhiannon Podkey. Thank you all so much. Happy holidays and see you. Well, I think we'll do one more before the end of the year. We'll, we'll see. Uh, see you all. We need to have the end of the year wrap up version of our podcast. That'll we'll, <laughs> we'll, see. We'll, see you. we'll see you all next week for the end of the year review. Thanks so much. 